0: There's something new on Airs L.A. every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from a Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. February 20. On this date in history, in the year 1792, the Postal Service Act regulates the United States Post Office Department. President George Washington signs legislation renewing the United States Post Office as a cabinet department led by the Postmaster General, guaranteeing inexpensive delivery of all newspapers, stipulating the right to privacy, and granting Congress the ability to expand Postal Service to new areas of the nation. William Goddard, a patriot printer frustrated that the Royal Postal Service was unable to reliably deliver his Pennsylvania Chronicle to its readers, or deliver critical news for the paper to Goddard, laid out a plan for the Constitutional Post before the Continental Congress on October 5, 1774. Congress waited to act on the plan until after the Battle of Lexington and Concord on April 19, 1775. Benjamin Franklin promoted Goddard's plan and served as the first Postmaster General under the Continental Congress beginning on July 26, 1775, nearly one year before the Congress declared independence from the British Crown. Franklin's son-in-law, Richard Baiche, took over the position on November 7, 1776 when Franklin became an American emissary to France. Franklin had already made a significant contribution to the Postal Service in the colonies while serving as the Postmaster of Philadelphia from 1737 and as Joint Postmaster General of the Colonies from 1753 to 1774, when he was fired for opening and publishing Massachusetts' Royal Governor Thomas Hutchinson's correspondence. While postmaster, Franklin streamlined postal delivery with properly surveyed and marked routes from Maine to Florida, the origins of Route 1 instituted overnight postal travel between the critical cities of New York and Philadelphia and created a standardized rate chart based upon weight and distance. Samuel Osgood held the postmaster general's position in New York City from 1789, when the U.S. Constitution came into effect until the government moved to Philadelphia in 1791. Timothy Pickering took over and, about a year later, the Postal Service Act gave his post greater legislative legitimacy and more effective organization. Pickering continued in the position until 1795, when he briefly served as Secretary of War before becoming the third U.S. Secretary of State the Postmaster General's position was considered a plum patronage post for political allies of the President until the Postal Service was transformed into a corporation run by a Board of Governors in 1971. February 21. On this date in history, in the year 1961, a Rockefeller imposter and convicted felon is born. Christian Karl Gerhart's writer, a con man who went by the alias Clark Rockefeller, and passed himself off as an American blueblood, is born in Germany. Gerhard Schreiter gained the public spotlight in 2008 when he kidnapped his young daughter and became the target of an international manhunt. The attention the case sparked helped lead to Gerhard Schreiter's conviction in 2013 for the murder of a California man in the 1980s. Gerhardt's writer, the son of a landscape painter and seamstress, was raised in Bergen, Germany, and came to America as a teenager on a tourist visa in 1978. By the early 1980s, he was living in San Marino, California, where he went by the name Christopher Mountbatten Chichester and claimed to be a movie producer, among other occupations, as well as a relative of Lord Mountbatten, the British statesman. He rented a small guest house from Dee Dee Sohus, whose son and daughter-in-law, John and Linda Sohus, lived with her. In 1985, John and Linda Sohus disappeared. Soon after, Gerhardt's writer moved to Greenwich, Connecticut, where he presented himself as a wealthy individual named Christopher Crowe and used a fake Social Security number to land jobs with several firms on Wall Street. By the early 1990s, he was passing himself off as Clark Rockefeller, a member of one of America's most famous families who made their fortune in the oil business. Living in New York City as Clark Rockefeller, Gerhardt's writer, owned an impressive but later believed to be fake art collection, dined at private clubs, wore silk ascots, and told people that he worked helping third-world countries manage their debt. He was described as intelligent and eccentric by those who knew him. In 1995, he married Sandra Boss, a Harvard-educated executive at a management consulting firm. After moving to Boston, the couple purchased a multi-million dollar townhouse there as well as an estate in Cornish, New Hampshire. When their daughter, Ray, was born in 2001, Gerhardt's writer stayed home to raise her while Boss supported the family. After filing for divorce in 2007, Boss, who later stated she was unaware her husband was a fraud during their marriage, paid Gerhardt's Ryder an $800,000 settlement and gained custody of Ray. On July 27, 2008, during a court-supervised visit in Boston, Gerhardt's Ryder abducted his seven-year-old daughter and took her to Baltimore, Maryland, where he had already found a home and established a new identity as Chip Smith, a yacht captain. Following a highly publicized manhunt, Gerhardt's Ryder was captured by police on August 2 outside his Baltimore residence, his daughter was unharmed in June two thousand nine. Gerhardts Rider was convicted of kidnapping his own daughter and sentenced to a maximum of five years in prison. The spotlight on Gerhardt's rider brought renewed attention to the unsolved murder of John Sohus, whose dismembered remains were found buried in the backyard of his former house in San Marino in nineteen ninety four Sohus's wife was never found. In March 2011, Gerhardt's rider was charged in connection with John Sohus’s death. During the serial impostor's trial, prosecutors presented an array of circumstantial evidence linking him to the crime, including the fact that two unearthed bags of SoHus's remains had logos from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and the University of Southern California schools Gerhardt's rider once attended. On April 10, 2013, a jury convicted Gerhardt's writer of first-degree murder, and he later was sentenced to 27 years to life in prison. February 22. On this date in history, in the year 2006, a gang commits the largest robbery in British history. In the early morning hours of February 22, a gang of at least six men, some of them armed, steal 53 million pounds from the Securitas Bank Depot in Kent, Great Britain. It was the largest such theft in British history. The plot was well planned. On the evening before, two men, dressed as police officers, pulled the Depot manager, Colin Dixon, over as he was driving in nearby Stockbury. They convinced him to get out of his car and forced him into their vehicle. At about the same time, two more men visited Dixon's home and picked up Dixon's wife and eight-year-old son, Eventually, all three Dixons were taken to a farm in West Kent, where the gang threatened their lives if Colin refused to cooperate with the robbery. The Dixons were then forced to go with the gang to the Securitas Depot, where Colin helped them evade the building's security system. The gang proceeded to tie up 14 Depot staff members, load the 53 million pounds into a truck, and, at about 2.15 a.m. on February 22nd, drive away. No one was injured in the robbery. Eventually, one depot worker was able to contact police, who launched a massive search for the culprits. As the stolen money was all in used bills, it was difficult to trace. Securitas and its insurers posted a $2 million reward for information leading to the arrests of the robbers and return of the money. The next day, three people, one man and two women, were arrested in connection with the case, One had attempted to deposit 6,000 pounds into a local bank that was bound in Securitas Depot tape. However, all three were later released without being charged. February 23. On this date in history, in the year 1954, children received the first polio vaccine. A group of children from Arsenal Elementary School in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, received the first injections of the new polio vaccine developed by Dr. Jonas Salk. Thanks to the vaccine, by the 21st century, polio cases were reduced by 99% worldwide. Though not as devastating as the plague or influenza, poliomyelitis was a highly contagious disease that emerged in terrifying outbreaks and seemed impossible to stop. Attacking the nerve cells and sometimes the central nervous system, polio caused muscle deterioration, paralysis, and even death. Even as medicine vastly improved in the first half of the 20th century in the Western world, polio still struck, affecting mostly children but sometimes adults as well. The most famous victim of a 1921 outbreak in America was future President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, then a young politician. The disease spread quickly, leaving his legs permanently paralyzed. In the late 1940s, the March of Dimes, a grassroots organization founded with President Roosevelt's help to find a way to defend against polio, enlisted Dr. Jonas Salk, head of the virus research lab at the University of Pittsburgh. Salk found that polio had as many as 125 strains in three basic types, and that an effective vaccine needed to combat all three. By growing samples of the polio virus and then deactivating or killing them by adding a chemical called formalin, Salk developed his vaccine, which was able to immunize without infecting the patient. After mass inoculations began in 1954, everyone marveled at the high success rate, some 60 to 70 percent, until the vaccine caused a sudden outbreak of some 200 cases. After it was determined that the cases were all caused by one faulty batch of the vaccine, production standards were improved, and by August 1955, some 4 million shots had been given. Cases of polio in the United States dropped from 14,647 in 1955 to 5,894 in 1956, and by 1959, some 90 other countries were using Salk's vaccine. A later version of the polio vaccine, developed by Albert Sabin, used a weakened form of the live virus and was swallowed instead of injected. It was licensed in 1962 and soon became more popular than Salk's vaccine, as it was cheaper to make and easier for people to take. There is still no cure for polio once it has been contracted, but the use of vaccines has virtually eliminated polio in the United States and around the world. According to the World Health Organization, polio cases have been reduced by 99% and survives only among the world's poorest and most marginalized communities. February 24. On this date in history, in the year 1988, the Supreme Court defends the right to satirize public figures. The U.S. Supreme Court votes 8 0 to overturn the $200,000 settlement awarded to the Reverend Jerry Falwell for his emotional distress at being parodied in Hustler, a pornographic magazine. In 1983, Hustler ran a piece parodying Falwell's first sexual experience as a drunken, incestuous childhood encounter with his mother in an outhouse. Falwell, a religious conservative and founder of the Moral Majority, political advocacy group, sued Hustler and its publisher Larry Flint for libel. Falwell won the case, but Flint appealed, leading to the Supreme Court's hearing the case because of its constitutional implications. In February 1988, the Supreme Court unanimously overturned the lower court's decision, ruling that, although in poor taste, Hustler's parody fell within the First Amendment's protection of freedom of speech and the press. February 25. On this date in history, in the year 2004, The Passion of the Christ opens in the United States. The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's controversial film about the last 44 hours of Jesus of Nazareth's life, opens in theaters across the United States on February 25, 2004. Not coincidentally, the day was Ash Wednesday, the start of the Catholic season of Lent the star of the action-packed blockbusters like Lethal Weapon series and Braveheart, Gibson was earning more than $20 million per movie at the time he decided to direct The Passion of the Christ, for which he received no cash compensation. Largely based on the 18th century diaries of St. Anne Catherine Emmerich, the film was a labor of love for Gibson, who later told Time magazine that he had a deep need to tell the story, the gospels tell you what basically happened, I want to know what really went down. He scouted locations in Italy himself and had the script translated from English to Aramaic, thought to be Jesus' first language and Latin by a Jesuit scholar. Gibson's original intention was to show the passion of the Christ without subtitles, in an attempt to transcend the language barriers with visual storytelling, as he later explained. With dialogue entirely in Latin, Hebrew, and Aramaic, the film was eventually released with subtitles. A year before The Passion of the Christ was released, controversy flared over whether it was anti-Semitic. Abraham Foxman, head of the Anti-Defamation League, ADL, went on record saying that Gibson's film could fuel hatred, bigotry, and anti-Semitism. Specifically, its opponents claimed the movie would contribute to the idea that Jews should be blamed for the death of Jesus, which has been at the root of much anti-Jewish violence over the course of history. For his part, Gibson categorically denied the allegations of anti-Semitism, but they continued to haunt him for years after the film's release. In July 2006, he was arrested for driving under the influence a leaked police report of the incident stated that Gibson made anti Semitic remarks to the arresting officer. Gibson later acknowledged the report's accuracy and publicly apologized for the remarks. Meanwhile, Christian critics of the film's story pointed to its departure from the New Testament and its reliance on works other than the Bible, such as Emmerich's Diaries. Gibson, who put millions of his own money into the project, initially had trouble finding a distributor for the film. Eventually, New Market Films signed on to release it in the United States. Upon its debut in February 2004, The Passion of the Christ surprised many by becoming a huge hit at the box office. It also continued to fuel the fires of controversy, earning harsh criticism for its extreme violence and gore. Much of the film focuses on the brutal beating of Jesus prior to his crucifixion, which many saw as overkill. The film critic Roger Ebert called The Passion of the Christ the most violent film I have ever seen. Gibson's response to similar charges was that such a reaction was intentional. In an interview with Diane Sawyer, he claimed I wanted it to be shocking and I wanted it to be extreme so that they see the enormity, the enormity of that sacrifice, to see that someone could endure that and still come back with love and forgiveness even through extreme pain and suffering and ridicule. February 26, on this date in history in the year 1929, the Grand Teton National Park is established. In a controversial move that inspires charges of eastern domination of the West, the Congress establishes Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming. Home to some of the most stunning alpine scenery in the United States, the territory in and around Grand Teton National Park also has a colorful human history. The first Anglo-American to see the saw-edged Teton Peaks is believed to be John Coulter. After traveling with Lewis and Clark to the Pacific, Coulter left the expedition during its return trip down the Missouri in 1807 to join two fur trappers headed back into the wilderness. He spent the next three years wandering through the northern Rocky Mountains, eventually finding his way into the valley at the base of the Tetons, which would later be called Jackson Hole. Other adventurers followed culture's footsteps, including the French-Canadian trappers who gave the mountain range the body name of Grand Tetons, meaning big breasts in French. For decades, trappers, outlaws, traders, and Indians passed through Jackson Hole, but it was not until 1887 that settlers established the first permanent habitation. The high northern valley, with its short growing season, was ill-suited to farming, But the early settlers found it ideal for grazing cattle. Tourists started coming to Jackson Hole not long after the first cattle ranches. Some of the ranchers supplemented their income by catering to dudes, eastern tenderfoots, yearning to experience a little slice of the Old West in the shadow of the stunning Tetons. The tourists began to raise the first concerns about preserving the natural beauty of the region the vast acres of Yellowstone Park, America's first national park founded in 1872, were just north of Jackson Hole. Surely, they asked, the spectacular Grand Tetons deserved similar protection. In 1916, Horace M. Albright, the director of the National Park Service, was the first to seriously suggest that the region be incorporated into Yellowstone. The ranchers and businesses catering to tourists, however, strongly resisted the suggestion that they pushed off their lands to make a museum of the Old West for Eastern tourists. Finally, after more than a decade of political maneuvering, Grand Teton National Park was created in 1929. As a concession to the ranchers and tourist operators, the park only encompassed the mountains and a narrow strip at their base. Jackson Hole itself was excluded from the park and designated merely as a scenic preserve. Albright, though, had persuaded the wealthy John D. Rockefeller to begin buying up land in the Jackson Hole area for possible future incorporation into the park. This semi-secret private means of enlarging the park inspired further resentment among the residents, and some complained that it was a typical example of how Eastern money interests were dictating the future of the West. By the late 1940s, however, local opposition to the inclusion of the Rockefeller lands in the park had diminished, in part because of the growing economic importance of tourism. In 1949, Rockefeller donated his land holdings in Jackson Hole to the federal government that then incorporated them into the National Park. Today, Grand Teton National Park encompasses 309,993 acres. Working ranches still exist in Jackson Hole, but the local economy is increasingly dependent on services provided to tourists and the wealthy owners of vacation homes. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for February 20 through February 26. If you'd like to learn more about Ayers L.A., including streaming audio, podcasts, and more, we invite you to connect or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.